This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 52, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. My name is Nolan Martin. With me today is my good friend, co-founder, co-host, Aram Denisian. Aram, pretty excited for our guest today. Want to introduce Tony? I sure will. Thanks. Thanks, Nolan. Folks, today we have Coach Tony Blower with us. Tony has been an expert in the martial arts, self-defense, defense tactics, and combatives industry now for over four decades. He founded Blower Tactical Systems in 1985 and has grown it into one of the world's leading consulting companies specializing in the research and development of performance psychology, personal safety, and close-quarter tactics and scenario-based training for law enforcement, military, and professional self-defense instructors. Tony's research on the neuroscience of fear and the startle flinch led to the development of the SPEAR system, a modern personal defense system based on physiology, physics, and psychology. Defensive tactics and combative trainers worldwide have used it for over 30 years. Tony developed the world's first impact reduction scenario-based training equipment, high gear, revolutionizing force-on-force training for police, SWAT, and military organizations. We'll test here in a second if I think Nolan may have some background. (laughs) After decades of interviewing victims of violent encounters and studying violence, he created the No Fear program. That's no, like... K-N-O-W, as in the shirt that Tony is wearing, No Fear program. And it focuses on managing fear through self-awareness, resiliency, and a movement mindset. I can't wait to dig into this, Tony. Psychologists have also integrated this program to help veterans deal with PTSD. Mr. Blower's programs have influenced over three decades of trainers and coaches and most contemporary reality-based martial artists. He resides in California with his wife, kids, and dogs, but still travels extensively working with individuals, corporations, and government organizations worldwide, providing solutions for training, performance assessment, and credentialing. His company is dedicated to enhancing the mental and physical safety of everyone they help train. Coach Tony, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, guys. I almost fell asleep during that that, uh... (laughs) Man, I, I got to shorten that bio or something. <laughs> Forty years in, but it's it's fun to listen to it as like as a look back exercise and go, yeah, yeah, we did all that. Yeah, it's, well, it's quite a bit. Well, we we've got a lot to dig into. Go ahead, there, Nolan. Absolutely. And so my first introduction to the Blower brand was actually in the military. And as Aaron kind of mentioned, is that Tony and his company developed this suit we really could go full speed. And so when we're doing our military drills, room clearance, CQB skills, close quarter combat, you always know that if you see a guy in a big blower suit, which is this big black suit, that it's gonna be a no holds bar. So instead of having to stop all of a sudden because we don't want anybody to get injured, you could actually go almost 100%. And so it definitely makes training more realistic. And it, as a leader, 
It also allows you to get 15 solid minutes of training before it just turns into an all-out mosh pit and you got to finally stop everybody, recock, and, and go again. So for those 15 minutes, though, the best training that I've had in the military. So thanks, Tony. Thanks for the brand, and thanks for the gear. So You're, you're welcome. What a weird serendipity just to, to learn <laughs> that you, you knew of us you know, from that. It's, it's, it's funny what that, what that suit you know, allowed people, allowed people to do. So excited that we, we did it. You know, that came out of my, what I call my incubator period in the eighties, where we were just trying to looking at real violence and real fear management and going, well, you know, if we've got awareness and we got consent and we got preparation, then we're not really stress inoculating. We're not really testing ourselves. And so the gear, the gear was like, okay, if we add that gear, we can add more fear and make it more realistic and and you got you know uh, the the benefit of performance psychology as as well as the physical absolutely and we'll continue to dive into that today so very excited so kind of the first question that we usually ask our guests is how on earth did you get here so how did you uh, become the pro in the self-defense and tactical training industry that answer might be longer than the uh, the introduction so <laughs> i don't know how much hard drive space you have you know, so I'm 62 years old and I've lived my entire life wondering if I'm the most afraid person in the world. You know, obviously I say that, you know, uh, tongue in cheek and it's what inspired the whole No Fear program. But as a kid, I was afraid of everything, right? And but I also had this keen, intuitive self-awareness slash situational awareness thing where I'd, I can remember being like, six, seven years old going, okay, if somebody's going to jump me from there, they'd be over there. So I should walk over here. This is like weird, but I was afraid, but I was always nerdy with that stuff. And I grew up in the sixties when, you know, the original wild, wild west was on and Mannix and streets, for instance, streets of San Francisco and all these like crazy macho and every, and every, every fight or sorry, every show was solved with a fight, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, somebody, you know, chopping uh, somebody with, uh, you know, uh, like Manchurian Candidate with Frank Sinatra, you know, like just old school, like not like John Wick level choreography. <laughs> but I was glued to the TV. I was watching that stuff. I was fascinated by that stuff. And there was a thought I had that none of these guys, you know, like as a seven, eight, nine, ten year old, you're not thinking, you're not thinking these are actors. You just think that's real. Right. Right. And there was this thought I had that, wow, if I maybe my fear would go away if I learned how to fight, if I learned how to defend myself, if I could step in and and be the courageous bystander. That was just in the back of my head. What's important is I was a good athlete just for, for your audience. And I was a good athlete, but I was never great. I never made it, whether it's gymnastics, tennis, baseball, football. I could play. I wasn't picked last. So it was it was an interesting dance because I was good, but I'd be up at bat going, don't strike out, don't let down the team, your mom's watching, don't like, and I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong instead of all the things that could go right. Yeah. And that's an important reframe because a lot of people, I think, deal with that, worry about what other people think about them, worry about how they're going to be received, how they're going to be perceived, and that changes it. I mean, it's just that imposter syndrome. Uh, performance anxiety and and you're just focusing on the wrong stuff well fast forward you know navigating life i'm 12 years old i'm leaving uh school pickup game 
on a weekend and I'm 12 years old. I'm turning 13. These two kids, they're like 15, 16 years old. They see me leaving the school ground and they're like, Hey kid. I'm like, Oh man, these older kids are talking to me. So I, like I run over to them <laughs> and I go, yeah, what's up? They go, Hey, uh, when do you go to high school? We're at a high school about 500 yards off the street. And uh, they say, I said, oh, I, I go to high school next year. They went, well, we'd like to welcome you to high school. I'm like, oh, cool. Thank you. And they grab me. And one of them pins me, you know, arms behind the back. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And this guy does like the, the first bolo punch next to like Sugar Ray Leonard. <laughs> like he, just, he just starts to wind up like this. And it goes in super slow motion. And I'm like trying to struggle. I'm like pulling away and this guy winds up and he lets a body like uppercut go to my body. Now, I had never been beaten up before. I'd been in a couple of skirmishes as a kid, but they were like wrestling mats, you know, matches at the, at the schoolyard. But this was like significant. Like when you're 12 versus 15, there's a big difference in size and age. Yeah. But the most important thing is the fear in my mind. And I thought the punch was going to kill me. Because everything, you probably know this term from, from training. I don't know if you remember the term tacky psyche. It's a big fancy word for, you know, everything appears in slow motion. Your brain is processing things at such a great speed that the real world events look like they're happening in slow motion. Hmm. And I see this punch coming around in slow-mo and I scream. I hear myself screaming, ah, and it hits me and I think it's going to break my ribs. And I think, and what I imagine right then is my ribs going to break, it's going to puncture my lung and I'm going to die. This is what's going through this 12-year-old's mind. As it hits me, but I'm, again, I'm in really good shape. I've been wrestling for years. I've been, and, you know, you can't get your abs any tighter than locking them down like this and then having somebody pull your arms and you're struggling. It hits my body, nothing. But the anticipation of the injury was so overwhelming that I screamed this blood-curdling scream. <laughs> and I was like, ah, and I felt this is so cool because it's, it's part of our behaviorally-based self-defense protocol now, I felt the guy holding me, I felt him relax. I felt him like, get, I felt his own fear when he thought he hurt me. And so I immediately, my intuition said, scream again. And I went, ah, and I pretended I was like dying. And the guy dropped me and I fell down to the ground and I, and I feigned this fear and I feigned this pain. I was like, ah, ah, and they took off. And they were gone like in five seconds, right? And as they turn the corner, I'm on like 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 on all fours on the ground. I see them gone, like, and I realize there's nothing wrong with me. I was acting, <laughs> and I get up and fix my shirt, and I was like, "Wow, the hell was that?" And I go home and I tell my dad. I go, "Dad, two guys just beat me up." And he looked at me and he's like, "Like with pillows? Was it a pillow fight? Because like there were no." <laughs> and but I told him what happened. He said it was it was it was night. It was turning. Bruce Lee passed away in 1973. So it was just at the beginning of this Bruce Lee golden era and martial arts was just starting to, to come out. There was one Taekwondo school near us about three miles away. I signed up there and as soon as I went in there, I was like, okay, now all of my childhood fears, I went, this is going to make this connection. I'm no longer going to be afraid. And I started training like a madman, seven days a week, every class I could go to. I didn't get out of bed without doing, you know, punching a Mackie war at the top of my hands. And I do kicks down the hallway, 13, 14, 15. Fast forward, you asked me how, like how this started. I warned you it would be a long story. <laughs> yeah. the, the significance of this is 
I fell in love with martial arts so much. And I was so inspired by, you know, Bruce Lee passed away shortly after the self-defense world, martial arts world explodes. I'm reading about his life story and how he overcome adversity. Ironically, there's a guy, I forgot his, the author's name. The book's not out yet, but I was just interviewed for this book on for business leaders on what we can learn from Bruce Lee. Hmm. And they somehow found me and interviewed me about the whole thing. One of my favorite quotes of Bruce's is, to hell with circumstances, I'll create my own circumstances. Hmm. And even at 13, 14 years old, I want to remember reading that going, wow, like that's going to be important in my life. And uh, when I was 15 years old, I was on the floor working on the splits, looking at Bruce Lee magazines. We had a family business that where, you know, it was a generational uh, business, you know, so I was, I was set up if I wanted to go into the family business. And uh, my mom comes and she says, hey, have you thought about what you're going to study in school, in college? You're going to be a police officer, an astronaut, a vet. You know, there were only three choices back then. <laughs> or are you going to go into the family business? There was no influencer back then. I couldn't, there's no TikTok back then. So, <laughs> and uh, I looked up at her, she says, so have you thought about what you're going to do? I looked up at her and I said this exact to her, exact uh, sentence to her. I said, mom, school's not going to be very important for me. I'm going to be a famous martial artist at Bruce Lee. I'm going to develop my own self-defense system. Hmm. And she pat me on the head and said, okay, dear, we'll talk about this when you're older. <laughs> I just knew and I didn't know why I knew, but there was just something that I felt there. Fast forward another five years. I'm 20 years old. What am I doing? I'm working at my dad's office, right? Like I forgot the dream, <laughs> but I never stopped training. I'm working in the shipping area. He made me start at the bottom, sweep in the back. It didn't, it wasn't like, oh, you know, oh, you got the same last name as me. Here's an office. You're going to start off sweeping. You're going to learn the business. I was in the shipping department and we would get these big boxes in from uh it was an import company and when we finished the boxes they were like giant remember when rocky would hit sides of meat yeah the original rocky yeah so these huge boxes like you could stand in them it was like this they were so thick that you could punt they were like heavy bags and when we were done unloading them i'd kick them at the end of the day and i'd wail it and if you hit it really good they were so dense that like your nail your 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 knuckle might pop a hole in it so it was really Interesting. So one day I'm smashing, I'm working out, jump back, kick, kick, side kicks. And they're like these big, like six by six giant, huge boxes. And I turn around and I see one of my dad's good friends, who's our biggest client, this guy, Joey. And he says to me, wow, you're getting, and I've known him my whole life. He's my dad's good friend. He goes, you're getting really good at this stuff, martial arts. He said, Mitchie, who's his 15 year old son is having a bully issue in school. Would you train him? And I said, sure, of course. He goes, how much do you charge? I'm not going to charge you. You're a friend of the family. He says, I need you. And you talk about this as a negotiation podcast, right? <laughs> he goes, he goes uh, no, no, no. I don't want it as a favor. I want you to be prepared. I want you to show up on time. I want, this is my son, Tony. Bully issues. I need Mitch prepared. He goes, I need a price. I go, uh, Joey, I, this is, look, look at me. I'm a natural negotiator, right? I'm like, I, I can't charge you. I can't charge you. <laughs> you guys are going, no. And uh, he goes, how's 20? Now I'm making in 1980, $4.60 an hour minimum wage in Canada at the time, maybe less, maybe four and a quarter. 
and I'm pretty good with math. So when he says 20, I go, that's like five classes, like a month. He's paying me for the month in advance. Okay. Right. I go, listen, I don't want, he goes, you're $20. He says, I'll pay you $20 a class. Don't be late. Make sure my son is safe. And I go to, did he just say 20 bucks? A class. A class? <laughs> Holy <laughs> So um, I, I do an invisible, like, and I'm thinking, like, as he says, oh my God, I'm rich. Like, I'm, oh my God, what am I, like, I haven't even done one class yet. Uh, probably the, the serendipity of this, and again, I've used that word twice now, is it rekindled that 15-year-old dream because as soon as I started teaching him, that was my canvas. I love coaching. I love teaching. I love helping people. Then, like a month later, uh, Mitch's brother, Steve, says to his dad, how come Mitch gets private lessons and I don't? Well, <laughs> right? So now i got two students. And then we're working out one day, and we're obviously in a well-to-do area. They're doing private lessons, 1980, 20 bucks a class. Here you go. And uh, Derek, from across the street, they're good friends. What are you guys doing? Literally within a month, I had 30 students. Holy cow. So I was working full-time for my father, and then I would teach every single night and every weekend. 30, 30 became 40. And I did that for five years uh, until I opened my first place. But I was working like 80, 90 hours a week. But I was doing all these private lessons. And... Uh, it was like, oh my God. And eventually I said to my dad, hey, this isn't for me. I've got, I've got to open my own thing. I've got to go full time at this. But along the way, the first kid, this guy Mitch, that the bully situation, what was I teaching him? So I I boxed, I'd done Wing Chun, I had done uh, dabbled in Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's art, I had wrestled, I was still doing Taekwondo, and I was teaching what we would call today a mixed martial art. I didn't, I'm not saying I invented mixed martial arts. There were tons of people doing stuff like that. But I was intuitively just going, well, you know, if we get into a clinch, well, I'm going to use my wrestling. If I'm in close, I'm going to hit him with a body shot. Push him back, I'm going to kick him. So it was very eclectic. Mitchell gets into the confrontation with the kid and gets dropped, like flash knockout right away, one left hook. And he comes back to the private lesson to tell me this. And he's 15 and he's furious. And I'm like, I'm embarrassed and I'm angry. And I go, well, what happened? What do you mean? Because we're like, we were sparring hard and doing things. And this was the big, you know, when you talk about like an origin story for the development of a new product or service, he goes, well, the, the kid tripped me as I was running. I was late for class and it had always been verbal abuse up until then. And I told Mitchell, like, if he puts his hand on you, that's when you can go. Because the school wasn't doing <laughs> Nobody was doing anything. That's why his dad his dad hired me. Well, when Mitchell describes this guy, he goes like this. You know, he's going, you f And he's picking up his books. And the guy, it was the first time Mitchell had asserted himself. So the guy stands up and he's like, what did you say? And he walks towards him and he shoves Mitchell, you know, that little poke here. And he goes, say it again. And Mitchell, who's angry and embarrassed, and there's kids standing around, grabs the guy in the, you know, he's 15 grabs a single arm lapel, grabs, slams him against the locker and says, never put your hands on me. Not realizing the irony of it because he's got his hands on the guy. Right. <laughs> and Mitchell looks at me. He said, so I grabbed him. I slammed him against the locker bank and I said, never, don't you ever touch me. Don't put your hands on me. And then he stops talking and I go, and, and what happened? He goes, he dropped me with a left hook. And I'm like, 
geez, man, why didn't you parry? Why didn't you block? Why didn't you slip? Why didn't you do something that I taught you? And he goes, I was holding with my left hand and I had my school books in my other hand. And I was like, oh my God. So could you imagine if you had to box somebody holding their shirt and holding books? <laughs> How soon would they punch you in the face? Like right away. Now, what I didn't realize then, and this became part of, you know, when we when we talk about my spear system, spontaneous protection, enabling, accelerated response as the science of self-defense, back then I knew nothing about the cross-extensive reflex, about the uh, uh, startle flinch response, and that when you flinch, your body contracts. <laughs> and if you're holding something in your hand when you flinch, you contract around that. So if you're a cop holding a flashlight and an ID, if you're a businessman with a suitcase and keys in your hand and something happens and you go, the cross-extensor chain will lock up around that, which means you can't do wax on, wax off. And nobody realizes this, right? So here's Mitchell, when that guy started the, the left hook, goes, he flinches, but he can't do any of the moves because his body's tightening up around the shirt and around the books. And in that moment, and this was the, the insight, I literally I make this joke, but it was serious. It was like the God of self-defense hit me with a lightning bolt. And I went to say to myself, oh my God, we teach self-defense wrong. What I realized is just like if you're learning shooting and CQB, if you're not doing force on force with other role players and trying to reverse engineer and replicate the threat you might see, and you're just doing flat range stuff, you're not prepared for sudden violence. And it was the same way when we learn and practice self-defense, we learn things like how to get out of a headlock, how to get out of a lapel grab, how to do a gun disarm. And all of these attack, all of these counters start after the attack. They don't take into account the emotional, psychological, or the physiological. And they're always, like you understand physics, action's faster than reaction. We're letting the bad guy move first by that training protocol. So in that moment, here's this 15-year-old kid. I have this insight. I go, are those your books pointing to the table? He goes, yeah. I go, grab them, grab me exactly. And we we undid what happened. We didn't couldn't take away and go you know, into the past, but we understood what he would need to do. And it was the exploration. And that became, that day in 1980, changed everything that I did in self-defense. Everything had to have a scenario. Why are we doing this? It was all Socratic. We started to respect how the body and the mind integrated and work together. And it was, it was truly holistic self-defense, as touchy-feely as that sounds. And I continue to study violence, fear, and aggression, and have been for 40 years. What it did was it inspired the SPEAR system and inspired the No Fear program because we started doing, literally before Fight Club was a movie, once a month we would get together. And we had the old VHS cameras, giant cameras, and we would film stuff and we'd do one-on-ones and three-on-twos and six-on-fours. And, and we would always do scenarios. We never sparred anymore. I mean, we sparred, but when we were doing self-defense, it was like, this is a mugging. This is an attempted rape. This is an abduction. These are bullies. This is, and we would go out into the parking lot between cars. We, it was crazy, but it was giving people this truly uh, three-dimensional, emotional, psychological, physical experience. And the biggest thing that I realized in it was that there were people who were very good physically, who just like somebody who gets stage fright, right? Or fails a test in school. They're smart. They know it but they suddenly have writer's block where they can't think because they've let the fear, the future fear impact their present self. And you know, I'm sure you guys have, have heard the acronym false expectations appearing real for fear. We're visualizing something in the future that's distracting or debilitating us in the present. 
And, and I had this epiphany during training that only the people who manage their fear manage to fight. I'll say that again because it's kind of significant. Yeah. The people who manage their fear manage to fight. And that's in business. That's in relationships. That's in self-defense. That's in weightlifting. That's in gunfights. It's, we have another, we have, we have uh, some really cool, fun ac- uh, maxims like don't confuse technical with tactical. And a lot of people overthink the technique of stuff, but, and they end up not doing anything because they're overthinking. So the mind navigates the body in, and that was the most significant discovery. But all of that, that's why I joke that the eighties were my incubator period, because for that 1993, when I closed my school for 13 years, We'd study violence and then replicate it. We'd go, would, man, like what would have changed the outcome here? And so it wasn't like an orthodox move where if you're learning a traditional or classical approach to martial arts self-defense, the unintended consequences, you're trying to get your body mind to move in a way that you're deploying something from that system. Hmm. So if you're in a Taekwondo competition and you punch a guy in the face, you're going to get disqualified because it's not part of, you hit a guy with a body hook, they're going to go, that's boxing. You can't use that. It's not Taekwondo. So it's an unintended consequence is like you're conforming to the style or the system as opposed to just moving based on like, what's the directive? What is the mission here? Well, that's to get to safety. And what, and what do I need to do that's both efficient and effective? And so discovering that we are human weapons. Most of us know how to defend ourselves. We just don't know we know because we've been either domesticated or we got into some sort of martial art. And I say this as a lifelong martial artist because it can be misinterpreted by selective listeners who are saying, oh, is he saying my jiu-jitsu is bad or my boxing is bad or my... No, all of that is really good. But, but you know, it's, it's like being a, a handyman, a carpenter, an architect. Everyone knows how to use a hammer, but only the architect goes, yeah, this isn't going to work here. Right. And so if you're trying to understand the blueprint of violence, you need to be an architect. You need to look at it and understand the physiology, psychology, the fear, the timeline of violence. But anyways, that. No, that's fine. That was an earful. Yeah, that's great. I'd like you to expand more on this last piece you were hitting on. So, so much great stuff in there from, from reframing, dealing with fear. I mean, violence and conflict are obviously part of our world, part of human history. Absolutely. What's interesting, what I'd love for you to expand on, Tony, if you could, is it's it's how we interact with it. And you were just saying something about with mind in, you know, mind or our thinking towards what is our goal. And that drives what that should drive what we do. Sure. It doesn't always do that, though. Yeah. Some, sometimes the goal is so specific that it impacts your situational awareness. So in business and in life, situational awareness is everything. But if you don't have self-awareness, you can't have fully functional situational awareness. And, and it's an interesting hypothesis, like in our, in our corporate stuff, where, but also in our self-defense stuff, that, that let's say you're, a, let me use like a martial art example, and then we'll, we'll try to make it more relevant. If you're a really good grappler and you leave an ATM machine and you're a jiu-jitsu wrestler, all of your neural patterns are about getting somebody to the ground. If you're a good Taekwondo martial artist, you're a kicker. You're not thinking about taking someone to the ground. You're thinking about kicking. So if I say to a boxer, guy, guy tries to strong arm 
uh, uh, rob you after an eight, you, you withdraw from ATM and he walks up, he goes, give me your, give me your, give me your money, man. If you're a boxer, you're going, well, man, whack, you know, you're hitting the guy with a body shot and upper, like if you decide to fight and not cooperate, the boxer would never say, I'm going to do a jump back kick here. It doesn't even occur to him because it's just like not even, it's, it's not even part of his, his, his repertoire. So we talk about the unintended consequence. We create an unconscious bias when we fixate on something too quickly. Uh, so not too quickly, too specifically. In other words, if our goal, if we go, this is our goal, this is our goal, this is our goal, if that goal becomes myopic, you can't see opportunity or risk in the same way where now in class, I got really good at double-legging guys or kicking people in the face or punching people to the body. And now I'm at the ATM, my romantic relationship with my martial art and my dopamine response to executing that move over and over again, this is my goal, this is my goal, has clouded the situational awareness that is, you should run right now. This guy looks like he has a gun or he's got a buddy in the shadows. So I always tell people that that if you're fixating on something too specifically, you might not see other pre-contact indicators or other opportunities. Hmm. So, you know, we created a uh, kind of a, a flow chart called the timeline of violence. And inside of that, there's this whole, you know, managing fear, what we call the neural circuitry of fear. And it's a, it's almost like a like a an electrical flow chart where we start off with a scenario and you run through it, and there's a there's a a dedicated fear loop that you need to pass through. And this is the transparency and authenticity of studying violence and aggression. I go, listen, if I said to you guys, hey, your podcast is doing really well, I think you guys should invest in a studio. Uh, you need $40,000 worth of equipment, sign this lease here, uh, get this. I want you competing with Joe Rogan and you guys could just do it. All you got to do is quit your jobs and le really lean into this. Even though you're going, wow, 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 no one would go, let's do it right now. You'd all go, holy you go into the fear loop because your brain by default as a human starts to visualize what could go wrong. And that's the self-awareness piece. If I don't have the self-awareness to realize that I'm now false expectations appearing real, I'm visualizing what can go wrong. That creates, and I always tell people in our no fear protocol is a fear, like a sudden stimulus of fear. Could be anything, could be financial, business opportunity, medical violence, whatever it is. The sudden stimulus creates doubt, doubt creates hesitation, hesitation unchecked, meaning if my self-awareness doesn't go, what are you doing? You need to research this. You need to get off the X. You need to move. If my self-awareness doesn't catch that, then I go further and deeper into the fear loop. Now doubt created hesitation, hesitation creates procrastination. Unchecked procrastination becomes fixation. And we've all seen this. We've all gone through this where you come into a room and energetically, you go, what's the matter with so-and-so? And then you look at them. And how many times have you bumped into either a loved one or a buddy? And you know, there's you could just tell because body language is 60% of communication that they're in a funk. Something's wrong. And you look at them and you go, hey, man, you okay? And they look at you. They look up. They go, yeah, why? What's up? Like, they don't even know because their self-awareness is, they're so in the fear loop, they don't even know that, you know, they're being derailed from their tactical imperative, which is, do something. You got to move. So that was kind of like a little metaphysical and a little nerdy. But if, if someone says like, hey, this if my goal is to be happy or my goal is to be wealthy or my goal is to get out of the job and start my own company or my goal is to get married, 
like it, it starts there, but we, we need to understand the psychology of fear because I'm sure you've seen this, the, uh, the play on words of rationalize, rational hyphen lies, right? The story we tell ourselves, we're the easiest people to fool as the, as the maxim goes. Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's conversation. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.